So I think having a coherent strategy where we're aligned is super helpful. I guess one of the other things I was going to mention that helps drive that is we have a, a meeting that we set up that's more kind of the strategic side of that that we call our interlock meeting. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast featuring conversations with the most accomplished, admired, and amazing female revenue leaders throughout B2B tech. Taking the Lead is hosted by Christina Brady, a sales leader, lifelong learner, and president of Sales Assembly. This show is brought to you by Sales Assembly, the industry's first and only scale-as-a-service platform that helps high-growth tech companies scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. Visit salesassembly.com to learn more. And now, let's jump into the conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I'm Christina Brady. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer of Sales Assembly, and I am excited that all of you are here for yet another incredible episode. Before I introduce my fantastic guest, I want to give a quick shout out to our incredible sponsors, Blueboard and Motion, the podcast servicing company. So kicking it off with Blueboard, if you haven't heard of them, they're a company that offers non-traditional spiffs and incentives for your your teams. So let's say that someone on your team wins a contest or you want to reward them in some way and you want to send them on something unique. Maybe they want to go skydiving. Maybe they want to do a private golf lesson. Maybe they want a massage or a spa day. Blueboard makes it possible for you to give your reps the kind of rewards that they actually want. And they have a curated experience to help them do so with their dedicated concierge. So I was lucky enough to actually be able to take advantage of one of these. They offered me an opportunity to choose anything that I wanted to from their incredible suite of services. I, of course, am always stressed. So I chose a massage. And as soon as I clicked on it, I got a call and an email from their concierge. They found a place close to me that was open that I felt comfortable with. They set up the entire thing. I never even had to pull out my credit card. So if you are looking to find ways and innovative ways to give your reps experiences instead of cash or gift cards, learn more about them at podcast.blueboard.com. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Motion. They are a podcasting service for scrappy marketing teams in B2B tech. They launch podcasts just like this one. They create the audio, video, and even written content out of each episode. If you want to start your own show or just learn more, you can find them at motionagency.io. And with that, I am excited to dive in with my guest today. Uh, I am here with Esther Friend. Esther, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christina. I'm delighted to be here. I am also delighted. That's becoming one of my favorite words lately. It's just this idea of delight. And I feel the same way. I want to dive first a little bit into your history and your background. So you're currently the VP of Sales Efficiency and Transformation at Five9, which I just want to say, I love that title. The idea of transformation is a title. <laughs> Fantastic. But prior to that, you have some really incredible experience too at ANGI Home Services, at HC1.com, at ChaCha. You certainly know what you're doing. Talk to us a little bit about your career, what brought you where you are at Five9. Sure. So I actually became really interested in the cloud as a, a contact center as a service space when I was leaving an evaluation for a previous company. So in that previous role, I was responsible for enterprise solutions, which my internal customers were sales, customer service, marketing. And so I was doing a lot of transformation in terms of the platform that we were using, the technology, and had a long history of working with contact centers and remote workforces and things like that. And so it was very interesting as I started to look at how we can modernize our platform, 
and start to meet more of the needs that we have with more ability looking at cloud-based contact center solutions. And so I had known 5.9 because I had used them before at Angie's List for the dialer. So I'd used them in a very limited capacity, but became much more familiar with them as I started to look at the big companies out there that were leading that space. And I just loved their team at the time. But when I left what used to be, I was at Angie's List and it became Angie's List and Home Advisor, and then we became Angie Home Services. So not, not everybody, I think, knows that name yet. But when I left and I was looking at where did I want to go next, I was so invigorated by the research I'd done in that space and understanding the huge impact that it has for businesses in terms of enabling them to lead transformations, that it was definitely one of the companies on the top of my list, especially because of my experience with the culture and the people that I had interacted with during the sales process. So that's kind of how I ended up at 5.9, but a lot of my background has been, I would say, pretty unconventional. So I've been in roles where I was on the product side, I've been in roles where I've been on the business side. So I would say that throughout my career, there's been a big focus on B2B SaaS as a big part of that. And how do you leverage technology to make life better or more efficient for various different types of end users, whether it's sales or whether it's external people like the guides that we had at ChaCha. So that's really my passion. I guess I'm a technical business person who can kind of straddle both worlds. And I have a lot of empathy for sales and those different roles because of having been a salesperson myself and also leading sales teams, whether it was field sales or client success, for example. So I think that definitely helps me be better at my job. It's just the empathy that I have and understanding they don't have time to go to 20 tools to get their job done. They need to really have everything in one place and be able to work very efficiently. I was going to touch on this idea of this level of empathy that you must have in terms of just being a really dynamite business partner, because I imagine that working in so many different segments of the business, you have a lot of that empathy for what it's like for your peers or your peer lines of business. And so I think the way that you approach working together and creating alignment that doesn't usually exist, that has to be front of mind for you because you have really unique experience that I think a lot of others don't who have just been in one segment for their entire life. So do you sort of use that experience to help bring people together and, and work together at an executive level? Yeah, so definitely use that experience. And I, you know, I've been in their shoes and so I understand what different challenges they're juggling with. And one of the things that I've seen throughout my career is that oftentimes there may be good intentions of like, hey, we've got this new tool or we're going to do this new process. But oftentimes the end user of that process or tool isn't in the mix early providing feedback and giving their perspective on what they really need. And so I was just having a call with some of our sales reps yesterday who were piloting a new tool. And they were so appreciative to be involved in the process. And typically that's what we do is get a handful of users with different backgrounds and different styles to test things out for us after we've gone through a few initial configurations to make sure it resonates, to make sure it's really going to provide efficiency and help them. And they give us great feedback on things that we can tune and make it so that it's really useful once we roll it out to the general kind of end user population. So I think they recognize that I have that background and I think it helps me speak their language, which is always good. Big. And it's so needed. And it kind of guides us right into our topic today, which is various ways that sales, marketing, multiple different lines of business can and should work together and align in all areas. 
Where do they align in terms of annual planning? Where do they align in terms of tools and shopping for tools? And kind of one thing that you talked about that I think is big that can be like an area that we start here is when it comes to shopping tools and getting the right folks hands on it and getting feedback, what do you feel like is the magical way to do that? Because I've seen it done both ways. I've seen it done where companies buy their tools in a silo. They think they're going to work. And then when they roll it out en masse, there's hysteria. People don't like it. It's not the right tool. I've also seen the flip side where they invite too many cooks into the kitchen. There's too many hands on it, too many people giving feedback. And now you don't want it purchasing anything because everybody's got an opinion. So kicking it off, honing in on tools, how do you think is the best way to collaboratively buy tools without getting in your own way? Yeah. So I think one, it kind of goes back to the planning. So making sure that you have a an overall plan of like, what are your major goals you're trying to accomplish and making sure that any tools you're evaluating kind of map to that overarching plan, right? So I think that's kind of the first part is making sure it fits within the overall vision of what you're trying to do. For us, like one example I can share is that our marketing team had all this great content that they were creating and there just wasn't great adoption of it by sales. And they really didn't have any traction to see well, who's using it? How are they using it? Is this moving the needle? Should we put more resource towards this or not? And it was stored in a way that it was hard for reps to even know it existed uh, because it was just not very easy to search. And so oftentimes they would ask for content that we already had, which is you know just a waste of time, right? Right. So what we did is one of those goals through working with marketing is leveraging content more in our sales process and helping align around the messaging. So those key messages that are that marketing is trying to focus on out there in the marketplace, making sure that that is also echoed by sales and that we're aligned on it. So when we looked at the tools together, because it was such a rep impacting tool that we were looking for, they said, hey, Esther, will you lead the evaluation? Since it's really like no point doing this if sales doesn't adopt it. And we kind of jointly sponsored it and then we had kind of a marketing, a couple of stakeholders for marketing that were kind of deemed the, the most important through the more detailed part of the process. So they participated in demos with us. We went through that process. And then before we actually selected a vendor, we had uh, a POC environment that we set up with our Salesforce UAT, where we actually had a group of POC testers from our sales group, both leaders and end users. And they got to navigate the environment. We kind of did a couple of weeks with one of the tools and a couple of weeks with the other finalist tool and then got their feedback on you know, which tool that they actually felt met the needs and made sure they understood what the goals were we were trying to accomplish. And it really helped us know that we were choosing the right one since obviously these types of tools, even if they're SaaS tools, they require configuration, they require effort from the team to make them valuable, and then ongoing optimization. So you're making an investment of your time, not just buying something. So that really helped get us in the right direction. And, and then we leveraged that same group of folks when we went into the implementation phase. And we had a Slack channel with our vendor, with those folks where they could give real-time feedback, we could make tweaks and really optimize the configuration so that when we were ready to roll out, it was like a killer tool already for the first phase of the rollout. And then we did phase some things in as far as which features we focus on. So there's some more kind of, I would say from a workflow standpoint, a little more complex things. So at first we focused on just making it easy to find content, search, send, how do you track it? And then now we've done things like configurable pitch decks, proposals, et cetera, that we're rolling out in 
additional phases. But I think from a marketing and sales standpoint, like going through that process together and being aligned on what we're trying to achieve and then you know, working together to optimize that tool for sales has just created a lot of goodwill in the sales team in for marketing and having more appreciation for what they're doing and being more aware of what new content is out there. And so even our weekly newsletter that goes out for marketing has the links to where they can find it in the tool so they can easily send it out to their customers. So we're seeing tons of adoption of the tool. I think 80% of the users have already adopted it, even though we just rolled it out. This has worked well for us. And that kind of success has also led to you know our planning for next year and other things that we're evaluating. Um, and we just selected another tool together focused on account-based marketing earlier this fall, but kind of the same model where we looked at it together. What benefits are we going to see with this? How are we going to align use across marketing and sales? And then from a budgeting perspective, looking at making that case for that tool together. And it's kind of amazing how much more buy-in you get from your finance team and executive team when you're coming with a, a joint proposal around how it's going to be used by sales and marketing. So I think it's definitely a recipe for success. And that we're seeing a lot of traction from them, which is really exciting. That's huge. And there's a natural trust that goes along with peers, where when my peer has done something and been in the room behind the curtain and they're saying, hey, you should do this, that's such a great way for instant buy-in. And I think choosing the right people to participate in these pilots or trials is also really big. And so do you kind of have a formula for who you tap on the shoulder to sort of be your practitioner that's going to try this out? Like, how do you figure out who you trust to give the pilot the attention that it deserves and utilize it the right way? How do you find those people? Yeah. So I think some of them kind of come to light because as we're doing things, they're the most engaged people that are paying us on suggestions and interacting with us. We use Slack pretty heavily for sales communications and as a follow-up on meetings and we're on Zooms. And you can definitely tell who's like really eager to try things out and to interact with us. But I definitely always get the input from the sales leaders on if there are specific people that they would tap for a specific type of project. But I would say sometimes the same folks end up being in multiple different tests like that. And we also try to look at, you know, one thing I've seen is that you have some sales folks that are really tech savvy right? And really process oriented and just pick things up very quickly. And then we have others that are just those great relationship people, but they are not the tech people. Right. So we try to have different skill levels from a tech standpoint to make sure that as we're designing workflows and figuring the solution that intuitive for everybody and the users at both ends of that will be successful. So like the one I mentioned just a minute ago around like having a configurable pitch deck making sure that it's very apparent, like what are the next steps that they need to do? Where do they need to fill in the information? Like, what are we asking for? Just making it very obvious so that they can be successful and use it, you know, the first time out of the box without needing a lot of training. So we do obviously do training, but try to make things as intuitive as possible so that it's just really easy to follow. Yeah. Well, and this is a great playbook because given the various roles that you've been in, you've likely had to shop for new tools, bring in new tools, implement them across various lines of business. You mentioned marketing, client success, sales. And so a repeatable process that works to identify the people and then a process to actually implement the pilot and do the rollout, I think is super meaningful. Have you had an instance where you had folks pilot a tool that turned out to not be 
a great fit? Like, how do you determine when they're trying something out and it's not a good fit? It doesn't look good. Is that a combination of the the data and the feedback from the folks in the pilot? What have you done if that's happened where you're like, okay, I guess this isn't a good thing. We're not moving forward. How do you pivot from that? Yeah. So I would say most cases, if we're buying something fairly substantial, especially because we have the luxury of having Salesforce as our CRM. So yeah. most of the SaaS tools we look at have pre-built integrations or managed packages, things like that, to where it's fairly straightforward to get that into our UAT environment and actually get hands-on with folks. So I would say for anything major, that's typically my approach because the proof is in the pudding. And sometimes things that look good in demos, when you try to map them to your own environment, just don't pan out as well as you would hope. So that's kind of my experience is that I would prefer to do it that way. I'd say it's more challenging if you're a company that has to do like a custom integration where you're going to have to put skin in the game, a lot more skin in the game before you find out, does it really work the way you intended? So I'd say I feel very grateful (laughs) that we have Salesforce as the CRM because that just makes life a lot easier for that being able to pilot. I would say I haven't had the experience where something was like a total dud, but there are sometimes nuances in the workflow and that's where those POC users are so helpful is that it may be you know obvious to me or to the team members that I work with to configure it. And then you have them get hands-on and they're like, well, I don't quite follow this part. Why are we doing it this way? And so that's where you can tune it and get it right before you actually roll it out. So we were just going through one of those meetings yesterday on something new that we're rolling out and they had really great feedback about, hey, if I'm not using this part, it's going to take me a while to go delete this. The format may end up wonky. So we made it so it was more of a like a configurable item that they could click a checkbox and it would appear. But if not, it wasn't going to mess up their flow. So that kind of feedback is just like little things sometimes can make a big difference, like in terms of time savers, once you have your kind of final configuration that you kind of roll out. Yeah. Well, and I'm hearing a lot of deliberate language too, where it sounds like before you go into anything like this, where you actually get the individual contributors hands on this product, that there's a lot of work before that to sort of qualify you to get to that stage where I've seen people just sort of fall into pilots and have that be the entire investigation, right? It's like, we're going to A-B test it. Like we're thinking we need this. Let's throw a team on it. And I think that carelessness can be a little bit dangerous, especially if you don't realize it's careless. So the deliberate nature in which you're outlining that you kind of go into something like this and how much thought and time and consideration is put in before you actually get hands-on, I think is really the key here. Yeah, for sure. And especially having been in the sales rep or sales leader's shoes, I'm just mindful of like time is so precious, right? Time is like the most important resource for them. So when we're wanting to engage them, we're trying to keep it very brief, very minimal effort on their part, but it's important to get that feedback. And they know like that we listen to the feedback and it makes its way into the implementation that we do. So I think they appreciate the fact that they're going to save time later by participating, but also that we've got it pretty well tested. And I've thought through a lot of things before we ask them to get hands-on with them. Yeah. Because it's very intimidating, you know, sales process and it's very busy, especially this time of year is our end of year, end of quarter. And so time is so precious. (laughs) Well, pressure. I mean, I remember asking folks in my org if they wanted to pilot either a new initiative or a process or a tool, whatever it may be, even if it was one that they weren't necessarily going to be the ones using. It was like we want multiple minds and because it's a company tool, but those individual contributors 
always feel the pressure from their managers and just Mm -hmm. their own wanting to achieve of, okay, if I'm going to take the time to go and do this, I still have a hit. I still have a quota that I have to hit. Am I going to be able to achieve that balance? And so that pressure, especially like you said, at year end is, is big and it can almost impact the pilot negatively if you don't have people who are properly positioned to do it. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing that's been helpful is now that we've been through this process a few times in my role here at Five Nine is I think the leaders have also seen the benefit of the folks that participate early are the early adopters of the solution. And they're seeing a lot of value in our sales process. So one of our pilot users was using one of the features of our content tool, our sales enablement tool. And it just looked super professional for her customer. She had a really fast deal cycle. Like they just loved her because of how she presented the information and shared it with them. So it was like a hot off the presses example, very soon after we rolled out that feature, we were able to share and it resulted in the one deal that was over a million bucks. So it was a really tangible example of the benefits of using the tool that she had helped give feedback on. So pretty cool. Yeah, I think especially thinking cross-department collaboration is Thinking through what is the more powerful position, is it the person who initiates or is it the first follower? And I don't know if you've seen, there was a video a couple of years back of a park full of people and there's music playing, somebody's playing music on their boombox, and one guy gets up in the park full of people and he just starts dancing. Like, And everybody's sitting down and they're looking at this guy like, this guy's really crazy, he's dancing in the middle of a park, he must be some kind of a psycho. And then another person gets up and starts dancing with him. And that second person that got up, then suddenly it was a third and a fourth. And before you knew it, like in the middle of this park, there's just a dance party happening, right? And you look at it psychologically and you're like, anytime there's a change, which is the more powerful position that we need to lean on? Is it the person who initiates? That's the scary thing, right? Or is the power with the first follower? And so when you're rolling out a pilot, it's like, all right, who's my initiator when we have this brand new tool? Who's going to play the role of the first follower that's going to make it safe for everybody else to feel like, okay, well all right, if they did it, then I guess I can do it too. So I always kind of think about that nuance when it comes down to getting people to play nicely or try brand new things. Yeah. And that's actually something that's kind of part of our process that works really well as we roll out a new tool. We're looking at who is adopting it from the the initial trainings that you do and then following up with them to say, what are the killer use cases that you found? Because one of the exciting things is that sometimes users come up with their own use cases that you hadn't even thought of. Mm -hmm. And it's super, super compelling. So we had one sales rep that had come up with a lot of different ways to use the tool. And we featured him on one of our calls and said, hey, do you mind sharing your screen and walk us through how you're using this? And everybody was like, oh my God. And he just happens to be like someone who's performing you know, beyond his quota and doing so well. So they were all like, oh, we're going to hear his secrets and how he's using this. And so it drove quite a lot of enthusiasm for, well, I want to do that too. And you can see how the adoption bursts or increases when you have those example use cases that you share and they see someone else that they admire that's using it a certain way. Yeah. And taking these principles and bringing them even more broad, you mentioned a few moments ago, the idea around end of year, annual planning, Everybody is racing to finish out this year really, really strong. But also, I mean, likely if you're listening to this, it's the beginning of a new, at least calendar year, potentially your new fiscal year. And one thing I would love to get your thoughts on is where do you see 
the best way to have multiple departments align when it comes to annual planning. In my experience, I see a lot of that happening behind closed doors where every department has their own meetings, their own kickoffs, their own initiatives. And rarely does that communication make it to anybody else. You're one of the first people I've spoken to that have probably sat in every one of those rooms at various times. So in terms of alignment, when it comes to annual planning, what do you think are some best practices to get everybody started on the right foot? Well, so I think from a corporate standpoint, obviously good for everybody to know what is the target that we're all trying to achieve. And I think for us as a public company, you know, those things are very public facing as well, as far mm -hmm. as our revenue growth targets are and all that kind of jazz. So having alignment first in terms of like, are we all focused on the same target, which we are, but I think the other aspect to that then is once you start going through that planning process, like what budgets am I requesting for tools? What are my key initiatives for next year? And how am I going to accomplish those? We started talking very early on with our, especially with our marketing counterparts around aligning our plans. So for example, if we have certain goals around headcount growth to drive towards our numbers. Well, from a modeling standpoint, we need to look at, well, do we have the right amount of leads that we're budgeting for? Because marketing is really helping us drive you know, a percentage of our business through the inbound leads that are coming in. And so working on those models together to say, okay, if we're planning this headcount and these segments and these regions, what does that mean from a marketing spend standpoint? Mm -hmm. And if we're not achieving that through marketing, what does that mean from a channel's perspective? And should we make more investments in channel? So it's really early on talking through the strategy and kind of tuning the strategy and looking at calibrating to make sure that we're all aligned. Because I would say previously, one thing that I saw is that we might have increased headcount in a certain area or a certain segment of the business, but marketing didn't have a corresponding budget allocated to send them leads. And so then you've got people that have a lot more pressure to do prospecting, which prospecting is always part of the goal, but just a higher you know, amount of prospecting than others would need to do. So that's something that we've been working on aligning. And then also not just looking at historically, you know, what's the lead by certain areas and segments, but also what is the total addressable market when we look at our ideal customer profile. So we've also done a lot of work talking about what do we see based on our previous wins or losses around ideal customer profile, mapping that into our account-based marketing process, and then aligning on the parts that marketing is going to own in the plan for next year. And then also what do we need from sales to make sure that we can leverage all the good work that marketing is doing from that standpoint. So, and then also where there are new marketing tools that are helping them accomplish their goals. How does that impact sales? What is the sales user experience? How can we make it as clean as possible and streamlined? Having information that we outline on which tools we use when and making sure that it's always like in Salesforce as kind of the hub for all their tools that they're using so that it's very streamlined. And as we do things, we're not just overwhelming them. Yes. Well, I love that you mentioned just this, this idea of how before I can truly plan, I have to think about the ripple effect of where else is my planning going to affect? And then is that up against another budget or another initiative? So ideally, when do you think those conversations should take place? How far in advance of when you need to execute on a strategy? Because everybody, like conversations, everyone is having their own conversations like three, four months before the start of their fiscal year. What are we going to implement next year? What is our budgeting going to look like? What's the plan going to look like? What are the tools that we need to reevaluate? Things like that. 
in order to gain that kind of alignment, should it all just be happening at the same time? Should those conversations come before that? When have you found the best time is to collaborate and make sure we're, we're all moving in the same direction? Yeah, so we're on a, the fiscal year is our calendar year for sales. Mm -hmm. So this is our end of year this month, December, when we're talking, I think this may be published after that. Yeah, yeah. But, so for us, those conversations actually started in this around the planning piece. And I think one important thing is that you may not know what's your end kind of target from a booking standpoint that early, but you can build your models that are flexible so that you can change the inputs. So you could say, well, if the scenario is we want X percent growth, then this is what it funnels to in terms of headcount leads, you know, marketing spend, da, 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 da. So I think that's one thing that's helped us iterate faster through, through that is having the models that are easy to tweak so that even if you don't know the final outcome, you've got kind of a way to get there. Yeah. And you already kind of talked through the ways that you're going to, the different levers that you have and what the variables are and, and also doing the due diligence around existing tools that you may want to expand with other add-ons that help you do that or other new tools that you want to build into the mix, that kind of thing. So because what you don't want to be doing is doing all that last minute or missing the boat to where now you're into next year, you didn't budget for a tool that's going to help you do that. And now it's a lot harder to get because you haven't like kind of blocked that off in advance. Dare I say that that may be somewhat the norm right now that I think needs some disruption is a lot of planning happening in Q4 of fiscal years. It's like, I want you to say it louder for the folks in the back that this the cross-departmental and even interdepartmental collaboration and planning for the following fiscal should be happening six, seven months ahead of time. It's almost like you are you constantly have to be rolling over and thinking about next year, next year, next year. I'm taking a step right now. How is that going to ripple into next year? Because at a prior company that I was at, I don't want to say the names of the two tools that were purchased, but our marketing team purchased one tool for their customer communications and the sales and CS team purchased a competitor's product oh to accomplish <laughs> yeah to accomplish the same thing for their customer communication both of them to your point spoke and integrated pretty seamlessly with salesforce but there's this moment where we all kind of realized it three or four months after because we're starting to see the sends showing up in Salesforce as if these two tools inside of our CRM were boxing with each other. But both teams had built an entire process, had implemented the entire thing and gotten used to two competing tools that while they both spoke to the CRM, they didn't talk to each other. And so when we were trying to figure out how we were going to work with marketing so that we weren't hitting a customer twice with communication and how we didn't want it to look like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And it did. And that problem persisted for probably seven to eight months until we figured out how are we either going to pick one or go with a different one? Because the marketing team was like, this is the perfect tool for us because they had shopped it. They had done their diligence. Mm -hmm. The sales team was like, well, this is the perfect tool for us. We have 400 sellers who are all using this now. So what are we going to do? And I just, it's why I think this is such an important conversation because I don't think that's rare. I don't think it's rare to suddenly go, oh, wait, what tool are you using? We don't even know that you have that. And we spend a lot of time and money that's that's wasted and we, we impact our ROI by simply not knowing when to sync and what to sync on. The planning there is lacking, I think, across most of tech. Yeah, so not a great user experience <laughs> for the customer or for the sales team. And then also 
you're kind of diluting your buying power too, right? Big time. So I think that's, yeah, I mean, it's been interesting because there, like there was another tool that we were looking at to replace our social sharing tool. And there were kind of a couple of different ways we could have gone. And one of the things that we identified is that the sales enablement content tool had purchased a social sharing tool as well. And so there was an opportunity for like from a rep standpoint for them to go to one place and have content they could share through their emails and to their customers, but also like the LinkedIn sharing in one UI instead of having to maintain yet another tool and remember to go to that other tool. So, right, you know, that was a big part of our evaluation was thinking about if we want to drive the adoption and we want it to be top of mind, they're going into that tool like every single day and they're going to see the social sharing stuff available if it's all in the same place. And so that was part of the discussion we had with marketing is like, well, if we can make it work from a pricing standpoint, then that makes a lot of sense because we're going to have better adoption. We'll have tracking that's more consolidated. It just made a lot of sense to work together on it. So I would say there's just so many decisions now that are happening where we're working together with each other. And we're, I think, having a better outcome because we're thinking ahead and not just like independently doing things that are impacting each other and where we could be diluting our efforts. So, and I think the executive team really appreciates when you're aligned with sales and marketing and you have kind of a cohesive strategy together, right? Yeah. Well, and you're, you're plugging a hole in your leaky bucket that you might not be looking at because what most are focused on is what is our growth on retained? What is our value retention? What is our logo retention? Like, where's the risk? We look so much at sort of those front end metrics of customer spend, customer depreciation, and how do we avoid that? And we tie that to the bottom line. But what we don't look at is, or as often as we should, I think is the time and money that is wasted without following this proper process. Like how much more are we lagging? How many dollars are we leaving on the table? How many customers are getting a poor experience that's leading to a lower NPS that is leading to degraded spend that we're not even looking at because we're so focused on the selling teams and not looking at the internal processes that are also causing a leaky bucket, but we're not looking at that. So I think it's an important conversation to constantly have that your bottom line is made up of a series of different factors and they can all leak at different times. Yeah, very true. Yeah. So I think having a coherent strategy where we're aligned is super helpful. I guess one of the other things I was going to mention, Christina, that helps drive that is, you know, we have a, a meeting that we set up that's more kind of the strategic side of that, that we call our interlock meeting. So we have a sales and marketing interlock that we do that's kind of more focused on the big picture vision, kind of where are we going, thinking ahead, what are some of the initiatives we need to be incorporating? What are we hearing out in the field? But it's a very strategic meeting. And then we have a lot of other more frequent tactical meetings. But that one is really good because it does help drive that alignment and kind of that future looking kind of approach where we can get a lot of good feedback and calibrate and just work together to drive the growth. So it's really helpful. That is a pro tip that is going to carry us swiftly into around the end of our episode, which is our rapid reveal. So This has so far been a fantastic conversation. And I am guessing everyone is like, I would love to get to know her a little bit better. Let's dig a little bit deeper into you. So the rapid reveal, it's five questions and you have 60 seconds or less to answer each. Are you game to dive in? Alrighty. Let's do it. Okay. One softball, maybe. Who was your first role model? 
So when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandpa, who was a tech or chemical engineer. And we would like go on walks and he was an avid photographer. So we've just spent a lot of time together. I was like his little photographer's assistant. And he was definitely a role model for me. He was always curious, asking tons of questions and trying to solve problems. And he treated me kind of like an equal, which is funny to think about being a little kid. And he'd say, what would you do about this problem? And just really that intellectual curiosity, but also his kindness and caring and interest in other people. So he was always just everybody that we would be interested to know about them, no matter who they were. And we would have what I thought at the time were like really awkward conversations. I was like, oh God, here goes grandpa again. And at the time I thought it was annoying, right? But now I'm that person that's like, you know, talking to random people. My kids are like, oh my God, mom, you're embarrassing us. But it's amazing the people you talk to and the things you find out and just people from different backgrounds. And it's just, it enriches your life to know people that have experiences other than your own. Oh, that was beautiful. It's like my mother always used to tell me when I was younger, like one day you'll have kids and you'll get it. And I'm like, no, I won't. And now I do and I get it. So (laughs) (laughs) two, what's an irrational fear of yours? What are you afraid of? Well, so I have teenagers and teenage time is like, it's just, you're trying to keep up as a parent. So I just have irrational mom fears about like accidents that could happen or just different stuff with them at school. Those are my fears. And then there's some that I guess aren't irrational anymore with like school shootings happening all the time and things like that. Like as a mom, it's a lot to see and be aware of and know that your kids are like going off to a giant school every day and just hoping that they're safe and they're smart and paying attention. And so I guess it's not that irrational, but That one, unfortunately, we're in a world where that what was a nightmare and something that maybe was a trope in movies to elicit emotion is now, I think, the reality that every parent has to consider wherever you are that something like that could happen. So certainly, certainly a stark reminder. I'm sad that that one's not irrational anymore. Right there in the boat with you feeling that one. Change of tune. Three, what is the most recent thing that inspired you? So I guess a couple things. One, so my youngest is uh, 15 and an artist and a math geek. So she has a very unusual kind of skill set, but she constantly is inventing things with art and just different techniques and coming up with ingenious things. So a lot of her mini projects that just appear at the dining room table and that she's working on them, like, how in the world did you ever think of that? So she's just very creative. So I love to see the stuff that she does and She's very about it. So she never wants to like show anybody. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so amazing. It's so cool. I never would have ever thought of this. So. Oh, I believe that music and art actually does enrich the mathematic and science part of the mind. My mother was the pianist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And when we were old enough to be able to talk, she started having us do music theory. And later on, I asked her why she did that, because I always thought it was just to learn music. And she says, no, it teaches your brain how to think about and apply them to life. And I was like, whoa. And then I realized so many of the artistic people that I know who grew up in the arts and who use that part of their brain also tend to be very good creatively as it pertains to math and science. And it's fascinating Mm -hmm. to me. So I'm not surprised now I'm inspired. It's beautiful. Four, if you could choose any other job in the world, what would it be? You've already done a lot of them. So <laughs> no, I'm going to do a not so serious one on this one, but so I'm a huge ice cream aficionado. 
And so I would say if I could do any job and money were no object, I would like invent ice cream flavors. <laughs> That's got to be the best one I've heard. I'd be your customer. I'd try them. I would try them all. <laughs> and then last, and maybe this will tie into four, I don't know, but what is a hidden talent of yours? What's your party well, trick? Yeah, I could say that ties in. So I would say it's not as hidden at five nine because we actually have this thing called Chopped, which is a cooking competition. It's like our whole company can can watch, and then you've got like probably ten or twelve participants, and it like narrows down every week. But I won that last spring as the Chopped winner, and so I would say more on the baking side as far as my preference for cooking, but it was like an overall cooking competition. So I definitely I grew up in a family of scratch cooks and loved it. My favorite thing to make is pie. So I make a really fantastic pie of many different types, but I also make homemade ice cream and lots of other stuff, but that is not hidden anymore at, at work because I was no, like I on where it was like real time and you had like your list of ingredients and you had to like perform in front of the whole company. So that was pretty oh funny. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I, had a list. I was like, okay, don't forget anything. And literally it was like a cooking show competition for like at the very last second, they're like completing the thing. I had to put like lemon curd on the plate and I was like, ah, whoa. <laughs> So it was pretty funny. I love that, like, say the word, Esther's going to pop a pie out, whatever you need. It sounds like your company is an incredible place to be. And just some of the things that you said sound like there's a really incredible culture at Five Nine, and that you take care of each other and that you're doing things really important in the tech space. I imagine folks are either going to want to connect with you personally or learn more about your company and what you do. So where can listeners connect with you and be your friend? Yeah, I would say LinkedIn is great. And I don't think there's that many Esther friends out there. So ping me on LinkedIn and let me know that you found me through the podcast. And yeah, that's a great way to do it. Awesome. Well, this has been a phenomenal episode. I want to thank you so much for sharing your tactics, your insight. This was very, very meaningful for me personally being a revenue leader, but I know for a lot of those listening. So thank you for being on Taking the Lead. Thank you so much, Christina. It was really fun. Good. We will see you all next time. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Sales Assembly. For more information about membership or our free 60-day trial, visit us at salesassembly.com. And if you like what you just heard, please subscribe to Taking the Lead on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening.